Hello, and welcome back to The Lake Podcast, where we speak to authors on their recent books covering South Asia. I'm your host, Karthik Nachipan. This is our fifth episode, and I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in, and especially to those who have subscribed. If you have not subscribed yet, please do so, and please do share the podcast and rate it on your preferred platform. You can also reach us on Twitter, at Lake Podcast. There's a commonly heard phrase, all politics is local. It's possibly true, but not when you read most accounts of how politics unfolds across the world, including how voters vote, how parties organize, and how elections are held. Off late, what we have seen is a nationalization of politics and the nationalization of issues when elections are around the corner or taking place. Do local issues matter, especially in the context of electoral democracies in South Asia? Yes, they do. They matter a lot. In this episode, I speak to Shandana Khan Mohmand, research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex, on her new book, Crafty Oligarchs, Savvy Voters, Democracy Under Inequality in Rural Pakistan, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. In the book, Khan Momand offers a unique view of Pakistani voters as strategic actors, making informed electoral choices that are intended to maximize their personal and group interests. Effectively, Khan Momand shifts the analytical gaze from landed elites or the crafty oligarchs, generally thought to have considerable power, to the poor voters who demonstrate much political savvy when deciding how to vote, who to vote for, and why. She does not assume how voters behave when casting their ballot, or take for granted that they vote based on how elites ask them to, but painstakingly investigates and measures how they vote. The book suggests that Pakistani democracy is a lot more robust, dynamic, and competitive than generally understood. There is a lot of political contestation taking place, with rural voters working through vote blocks to maximize their interests and achieve their political goals. Here's Shandana Khan Mohammad on crafty oligarchs, savvy voters, democracy under inequality in rural Pakistan. Great. Uh, Shundana, welcome. Uh, it's great to be able to speak to you uh, on your book. Um, I really enjoyed it, and it has so much contemporary and scholarly uh, relevance and importance. Uh, but before I get to Pakistan, um, I want to talk about uh, local politics, which the book you know, is about. Uh, you know, there's an adage that we often hear that all politics is local. Right, but that's not necessarily reflected when you read the mainstream political science literature. 
there seems to be a disconnect, you know, when it comes to uh, figuring out and explaining or connecting how local issues and concerns influence national politics. Now, why is there a gap, you know, when trying to understand and unpack the motivations of, of poor rural voters um, across the developed world um, and how they participate in politics? That's a really um, interesting question. It's interesting that you ask me that because a recent review of the book actually blamed, uh, accused of doing exactly the opposite is maybe not connecting upwards to the national. So instead of sort of national um, studies that focus at the national level, thinking more about what's happening at the local, this review, which I actually sort of agree with, it was, was saying that there isn't enough that you do to connect the book back up to the national level. And that's, and that's true. But my response to that um, is essentially the question that you've just asked, which is the fact that there's a real gap here. The gap that needed to be filled was on local politics. And I, I completely agree there would be a lot more fun to be able to start connecting more and, and, and um, trying to figure out what those connections really are. So when I study the implication, when I study what's happening in these villages in this one province of Pakistan, in, in, in Punjab, it would be very interesting to think about the implications of that for national politics. And in a recent piece that I just wrote in response to some of these reviews, I try and do that um, a little more. Um, in the book, I've done it more in the initial chapters, thinking about how national politics affects local politics. But there is a need to sort of draw that out a little more. And you're right that the connections may not be so strong. But there are um, sort of sub-disciplines within political science that do that very well and that are focused on the local level. Uh, one is all of the literature on clientelism, which is very much about the relationship between voters and brokers. And that works its way out in, um, in neighborhoods. It unravels in neighborhoods. It unravels in small units. Um, there's that. And then, of course, there's all of the literature on local politics itself in the sense of decentralization and local government. But it's the connections, I think, that you're referring to, is that we don't draw out the connections between we study the national level. We're not thinking about voters um, and individual voting behavior. And when we study voters, we're not always connecting up to what the implications of that are for the national um, level. I think around... I think our interest in voters, however, has increased. And I think that's happened essentially from about 2016 onwards, when we've started to wonder what voters, not just in South Asia, but around the world are thinking and doing. Why are they voting in the sorts of leaders that they are um, casting their votes for? So we have become more interested in what voters are thinking. Um, but voting behavior has been, you know, it has been a discipline of political science for a while. Um, but I think more innovative work that draws out these connections more actively um, would be quite interesting. I think what I want to sort of put very firmly on the on our agendas, on our political science agendas, is that voters really matter. A lot of our work has focused on political parties and the behavior of political parties and national systems. And I think we've just sort of made a lot of very big assumptions about what voters are doing and what voters are thinking. And more and more, we realize that so much of what we see as national politics is how messages are landing with voters. 
and how voters respond to that and how voters create politics around that. And, um, and I think that's, yeah, voters matter. And in Pakistan specifically, uh, where of course this book is based, voters haven't really appeared at all um, within work. There's very few pieces of work that have really focused on what voters are thinking and how voters behave. And I think that's specifically the gap that I was speaking to in this. In this case, rural uh, voter, um, and um, you know, also focused on not the rural voting, um, uh, not the rural elite. So, in the sense of the landed, uh, in the sense of factions of politics, but really thinking about what voters are doing in villages. Right. Um, you know, I'm 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 glad that you talked about clientelism because at least there's a ton of work. Uh, at least on the Indian politics side, um, which tends to, um, you know, emphasize ascriptive identities and how they contribute to how voters vote. So in India, there's this famous saying that, you know, you don't, um, uh, you don't uh, necessarily um, cast your vote, but you vote your caste, right? Um, and castes seem to have such a huge role in determining how you vote. Um, has that caused uh, us, at least in the South Asian context, to not look more closely or deeply into some of the other factors and considerations that determine how voters vote? I should have actually said earlier that some of the best work on voters and local, more local sort of um, perspectives and politics is coming out of India and it's fairly recent work. So there's work on urban voters and how they select their leaders uh, and how they connect up with brokers from Adam Orbach and Tariq Tachel. Tariq Tachel's work on, on how the BJP sort of brings together uh, different classes of voters. Um, Gabby Crooks Wisner has done work on rural claim making. Um, there's Jennifer Bussell, who's looked at whether or not what we see as the exchange of services is actually clientelism or whether it's really constituency services, which is not so different from what might happen elsewhere. There is really interesting work um, so coming out of uh, India. And I think what this work is managing to push back against is that ethnicity and caste politics isn't so much an ascriptive primordial identity. So you're not literally voting your caste. You are using it as an indicator of who you think is going to direct services at you. Mm. And that essentially then is a failure of the state's mm. delivery system is that you have to depend on people who look like you who are like you um, to be able to bring services to you and otherwise you have no expectation of getting any. So it is very much um, the fact that um, ethnicity and caste politics now is a heuristic device. It's not actually the fact that I, I really feel like it had, you know, um, because I was born in this um, group that I really must have a representative from them because I connect with them at a, at a, on, at, through a sort of identity, but I'm using it for, for distributive um, politics, because I'm assured that this is how things will come to me. It works with religion, it works with race, and so in similar ways. And that's, I think, where I would like to be able to start saying things like, it's not so unique then to South Asia. If we think about um, you know, sort of uh, ethnic politics in other parts of the world, in, in Europe, uh, racial politics in the US, um, the, 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 the identity means something in politics and it's been studied a lot in India and of course it plays out in a very specific way 
um, in India, but I think we can start connecting up studies on, on identity politics as people have for a while across the world rather than limiting it and insisting that there's something very particular happening in, in South Asia. But I think there is also another part to the story. Having said that, I do want to say that when I teach India, for example, India is just such a big puzzle um, because of the fact that it really should be doing so much better than it is. And I think a lot of those explanations come to the fact that its politics has been sort of literally stuck in caste politics to, to such an extent that people now wonder whether political parties have any real incentive. To, to develop constituencies away from caste, away from these kinds of um, linkages um, in, in the sense that parties might behave in other parts of the world. Um, so there is something about caste politics that is actually unique and that does hold back um, the sorts of politics that we'd like to see developed that is more just, that delivers mm -hmm. to larger groups where you don't have to build your descriptive identities and connections in order to receive basic schooling and health. Mm -hmm. Um, the health services, I mean, that you can expect money to come into your neighborhoods, even if your representative is not from your own caste group. Um, all of those kinds of politics, I think, has been held back by this identity politics of South Asia. Right. So I want to go into the book now um, and talk about some of the arguments, uh, its core points, the thesis. So it's, it's generally understood that that. Uh, Pakistani politics operates through landed elites or uh, the landowners who have considerable sway uh, determining voting patterns in rural areas. Uh, but your book challenges that notion by showing that it's more than just the crafty oligarchs. Uh, the savvy voters who make, inf who make informed, strategic electoral choices also matter. Um, what compelled you to shift the gaze from the oligarchs to the voters and focus on their strategic interactions? I really wish I could say that that was always the plan, <laughs> that I knew from the beginning that this is what I wanted to do. Uh, but like everyone else, like you said, what I was really interested in was understanding the extent to which these landed elites around whom our entire story of rural politics revolves. Mm. Uh, in fact, national politics, because this is the majority group that then sits in national and provincial parliaments, um, that I was really interested in, in, in knowing what they were doing. And in fact, the, very the title of the very first presentation I ever made on what eventually became the book project was Landed Power and Electoral Politics in Rural Pakistan. So it was very much about landed power. The reason it changed is because that's simply not what I saw when I actually started the fieldwork. So I realized that if I go looking for landed power, I will find landed power, right? If you're insisting that it's there and you're asking all your questions about it, then it will be there. But what happens if I stop asking that question? So what happens if I stop saying, how complete is your power while talking to a landlord? and go instead into the rest of the village and say how incomplete is the power of this guy while talking to voters in the rest of the village. And as soon as that happened, and that happened because we were getting these indications of the fact that we're sort of pushing something and pursuing something that isn't really possibly as strong as we think it might be. And when I started doing that, of course, a whole different kind of politics unraveled and became really obvious is that um, the power is real 
but it is very incomplete. And so much of the time, it's again, it's a heuristic cue. It's, it's people giving into his power because they realize that this is how services arrive in the village. It's not because they actually are beholden to him. They're not working on his land. They're not you know, uh, dependent on him for, for the sorts of economic resources that they used to be dependent on him for. I mean, they now get on their bikes or get into other modes of transport and go into these cities, uh, towns that have grown around them for jobs and also the economy has changed so much. The village economy has changed so much that the power of the landlord and insisting on it was just not connecting. Um, the evidence really just wasn't connecting up. So I flipped the question on its head very quickly and started asking about how incomplete is this power? And uh, really sort of everything sort of went from there. And like I, s I said earlier, this really was the gap that needed to be filled. We didn't need more on land and power. What we needed to know was how have things changed? And to what extent do poor rural voters now actually think, behave, think differently? Or what are the spaces that have opened up for them? And much as the book would like to sort of, much as I would like to stress this exactly this part of the argument of the book, unfortunately, we do see that in many ways that power, that space for voters is still very constrained um, by, by the landed elite. But at least, like you said, it's noticeable that there are now spaces that have opened up. Right. So rural, so rural politics in Pakistan, you know, has become more competitive. Uh, and rural voters have more bargaining power and clout than before, you know, and the authority of landed elites, you know, in determining uh, political outcomes, as you mentioned, has diminished. The book also shows that, you know, voters tend to uh, organize uh, or form uh, kinship-based um, vote blocks to protect their own interests uh, and use that as leverage to gain access to public goods and services. Right. So the notion of blocks is really interesting, right, for two reasons. First is you open up the black box um, of voting behavior, and you also show how group interests uh, influence specific vote choice. And so they're not uh, independent of each other. So how did you work your way through uh, this conceptually and empirically, the notion of vote blocks? Um. That, that's a difficult question. It really encompasses almost all of the time in the field. It's just from first becoming aware of them and the fact that this is actually how politics functions, that everybody speaks in terms of dhara leaders mm -hmm. and dhara is the local Punjabi word for uh, a vote block. And that so much of your politics is about the dhara leader and this dhara leader was mostly the landlord or the big landlord and then in other cases were these other um, people. In some villages we saw more of these other groups, other kinds of Dara leaders. In others it was this one single person with his authority across the entire village. And there was real variation within them, uh, within it, but I think what we, um, what we sort of managed to innovate very quickly was, and I keep saying we, I'll explain later, but I was working with a team that I really don't want disappearing in all of, all of um, this. Um, so there was always a team that I was working with. But what we innovated very quickly uh, was, the fa was 
I guess what you could almost call sort of crowdsourcing what the, the, the Dara is, what the vote block is. So we use surveys and we use network analysis um, as opposed to asking one or two key respondents of who are the Dara leaders, what are the Dharas in this village, which we did. Uh, but we then ran surveys using social network analysis to actually create these, these networks and what they looked like, these political networks, and then verified it and re-verified it in terms of what is just a loose network of voters, what is actually a Dara, which is a much more sort of tangible um, idea um, much more tangible unit. Uh, they're almost observable in the sense of there are leaders and there are people who consider themselves members um, of these and they take on sort of, and they have an importance through the sort of, you know, years between elections. And that almost all political behavior works through these units. There's only 20% of all of the people we worked with in all of these villages that said that they voted entirely independently, that their decision was their own and that they made this and they didn't want to talk to anybody else about it. The other 80% would regularly uh, tell us, I talked to so-and-so before I make my decision. And it's, it's, and it's not just in the family, these are outside the household. And so once you start tracing that up, you start to see where this almost pyramid starts to get created. And in some cases, the pyramid isn't quite a pyramid. I mean, it's, it's sort of very um, much flatter, more horizontal. But in other cases, it's literally a pyramid. But the point is that there's different units within that. It's not everyone heading to the landlord. And um, the, the, the beauty of that is that they then, then there's a lot of strategic politics that works around those units. So who am I going to align with? Who will I give my collective vote to? I've got five from my family, but now I've managed to get another 15 to make 20 votes from the rest of my, my, my uh, Viradri, my caste. And I'm offering this up for various, for various, um, you know, wh whatever they might require at that point. Um, and there's a lot of sort of strategic um, negotiation and bargaining happening. So one thing I think that is sort of new to the literature also is just how much politics is about this kind of strategic negotiation and bargaining that goes on all the time. It's a heavily political atmosphere in these villages. And that's all the time. I've been there during election times. And of course, at that time, there is nothing but politics in these villages. So when people say they're removed from national politics or that they may not be so interested or they don't connect, the villages is, is, there's nothing but the national election in these villages around those times. There's so much activity. There is so much negotiation. There's candidates coming through. Um, there's all of these sort of alignments changing and the nervousness around the alignment changing too close to the election date. Uh, but you notice this kind of sort of political discussion and uh, happening through the rest of the time as well, because these vote blocks are, are, exist all the time. And their politics work themselves out all the time. So there is, um, but how those alignments work, it was really interesting to really build the vote block from the ground up and not think about it from the top down because we noticed that even in a small village, the information of the landlord is not complete. Mm. And the information of the landlord is not the same information that we would get from these, uh, from if we talk to voters. So whereas the landlord says, everybody's aligned with me, you go to voters and you realize, well, actually, they're, they think they're aligned with somebody else, but then that person struck a deal with someone else who then is aligned with the landlord. 
So the landlord sees everyone aligned with him, but people are saying, no, not really, because they're a few degrees removed um, from all of that. So it's, it's crowdsourced in that sense. It's very much from the bottom up and using sort of survey techniques and social network analysis that we, that we did that. But of course, there's also a lot of ethnographic work. I mean, sort of, you know, thinking through what these look like, work, sitting with people, correcting, recorrecting, design, sort of mapping, remapping what these networks were. It's not, um, and um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a difficult part of it, but I, that essentially then is the exact unit that I'm talking about in the book. The whole book is about the vote block. Right. Uh, yes. Before I get to the methodology, which you briefly spoke about, uh, I want to just pick up on one point from the previous comment. Um, did you have, I mean, when I was reading about blocks, you know, I tend to sort of think about blocks as sort of cohesive units, right? But uh, did you think about maybe, I mean, I'm just curious about why you call them blocks and not say factions or a, a different kind of a unit. Um, yeah. Um, there is actually a section of the book where I spend some time really saying this isn't a faction and vote block politics isn't your factional politics as usual. And in fact, we end up getting rid of a lot of the sort of hiding a lot of the agency and strategic behavior that is part of this. So some of the differences within that is that factions are essentially a conflict group, whereas vote block, you can have a single vote block. Right, a village can be a single vote block, but factions are essentially set up as conflict groups. And also factions are usually associated with being led by um, landlords, two competing landlords who need to sort of separate the village between them. And that does happen, that is a fairly regular pattern. But then you have all of these vote blocks that are horizontal and that come up around sort of more, more marginalized, more, more lower income groups, lower caste groups. Mm. Um, and there is one quite dramatic story of a village in which the other vote block is entirely made up of the lower caste groups. And they put up quite a fight against the other vote block, which is all of the landlords. Right, and and uh, they, this other group has the support of some of of one particular landlord, um, and he's see he feels he's playing out factional politics, but the rest of the vote block doesn't identify with him at all. They're identifying with these with these other leaders um, that are leading them that that are from their own caste groups, and that's all of the story we get. Right, so again, the difference is who we ask. So some because there was this one landlord in the faction, they kept saying he was the guy leading it but he's, he's that's not what everybody else in the vote block is saying so in that sense the vote block is is a much more it really is a, a political strategic maneuver much more than the faction is which is very much about playing out village conflicts and, and, and separations that exist between them. Um, and I think we, by, by insisting on factions, we would lose out on the agency of voters of the more marginalized groups within it, mm. uh, because all of the attention, again, returns to those that are faction leaders right. and the reason why they created factions, as opposed to why voters behave the way they do in these villages and join these groups. Right, so, so, so let's talk about the methodology now. Um, you mentioned that you had a team who was, who was part of this process. Um, you know, the book's methodology is really quite innovative. Um, you know, the research design focuses on 
one longitudinal study of a single village, Sahiwal, over decades. Um, you also rely on multiple case studies, uh, comparing that one village with five others, drawing on, as you mentioned, ethnography, interviews, and surveys. Um, what was the intention behind this approach, the motivations that drove you uh, to do it this way? And what are some of the challenges you faced while you were implementing it? Um, so much of it is possible because we were working as a team. So we were a team of researchers, but we were also a team supported by loads and loads of uh, sort of research support. And this was all based at the Lahore University of Management Sciences at LUMS. And we were designing work at that time working on local government. And this essentially came out of a study that was really about local government and uh, how politics functions in villages around local government elections. And then it sort of took on a different focus, a different life. It's, it, it was, I mean, I think what you see as these different methods um, is, some, is, is because it evolved and it was constantly evolving. So it wasn't something that we designed on paper and then went out and implemented it. It was very much methods <clears throat> that were being added um, as we came up against questions that we couldn't answer with one methodology. So it was a, it was a live project. It went on for a while, uh, for over two, at least two years, if not three, we were actively out there in these villages regularly. Um, I was there a lot of the time. If I wasn't there, then they were research assistants of the project that were there collecting um, data. And we regularly came up against issues. So we started in this one village and we, we started with ethnographic work and just talking to people and then started to realize that the sorts of things we were after was going to require us to work in more than one village because was the story of this, and this is exactly what the book starts with, is was the story of what we were seeing in this first village. And the first village in the book on page one is the first village we went to as well. And, you know, is this the story of every other village? And it wasn't. Even in the same district, it wasn't. So the need to go somewhere else came from that. Then the fact, like I said, that so the networks would look so different based on who we ask. So we've got to think about a me different methodology, ethnographic sort of, you know, question answer sessions, interviews were not going to get us there we came up with social network analysis, which were embedded in surveys. So we started surveying in these villages and we kept adding case villages. Mm -hmm. And eventually then realized, okay, there, there seems to be a real sort of difference coming out between these two types of villages, which have their connections to historical origins. The, the British crown <clears throat> government um, set up two kinds of land settlement patterns, two larger types, and then there's other subtypes within them. But these two larger types, proprietary villages in which they gave out full proprietary rights to landowners, mm -hmm. and crown villages in which these landowners were always tenants of the state. We see very different kinds of social authority having developed a hundred years later in these villages as well, um, still. And that seems to be something that's coming out in these villages, but is that true of all? So that's when we decided that we would have to do a much larger survey and survey a larger group to see if that really is the story. And then all of the sort of quantitative work that you see in the book is all verifying that what we find in these case villages as the difference that seems to be emanating from history um, really is replicated and, and to be found is generalizable um, across these larger groups of villages. So. The fact that the book has these different methodologies that work together in some sense came from this need to build the stories of 
political negotiation to build the story of transformation in politics, um, which is very grounded, but at the same time to be able to say that this is a generalizable story, mm. right? That this isn't just the story of this village, that this is something you might find across the district. I'd love to be able to say that about Pakistan. And I think I can say it to the extent where I say, if the village looks like this, then this is what you can expect there. But of course, the other provinces in Pakistan have slightly different village types as well. Um, but at least if these are the sort of patterns that you see, then this is the sort of politics you'd be able to get. So to be able to say that, you then need to exit the village and do larger surveys as well. So it was a project, again, that built from the ground up. As we came across questions that one method couldn't answer, we added another, we added another method. Yeah. Right. Uh so one, one big takeaway from the book for me at least, is that strategic and local uh, interactions between different actors uh, unfold across you know, a context of what you call structural inequality. Right? And, and Pakistani politics uh, even today is influenced by uh, colonial patterns of administration and governance. So historical effects really do matter even today. You know, they shape and constrain politics and how uh, this politics manifests in, in a different ways. Uh, why do you think scholars you know, studying South Asian politics have not explored this, this aspect of colonial uh, legacies more? It's, uh, I agree with that question to some extent in the sense that I think you're right in that in political science in South Asia, we don't we don't go very deep in history. We, we don't do a deep history. We think very much about the why and what now. Um, and there hasn't been deeper sort of tracing backwards to explain the why and why we see certain kinds of outcomes, why we see certain kinds of patterns and where this might be coming from. Uh, but I do think that path dependence is taken seriously in politics as well. There is work around path dependence. And in fact, at some point, it's used too easily as, a, as, as an excuse to say it's all the fault of the colonial government and it all happened then and we just haven't sort of changed very much since then. Uh, but we do need to be a little more sort of explicit in drawing out those paths. I think we say the British government, you know, the, the British colonial Raj is responsible and then we talk about something that's now without thinking about what exactly is the path dependence, what is the pathway that lies between them, what are the ways in which current governments produced and reproduced the politics of the colonial Raj. And in that we know that in parts it did change, but what parts changed and what parts did not change, that kind of scholarship hasn't um, really happened. But I think it's a, it's a disciplinary issue in the sense that I think history and anthropology have done better at that, at being more aware um, of, of this kind of history than I think political science has. Um, but I think if we say path dependence, then we need to be clearer on what those paths look like and do a little bit more on that. I, I, I think it, it seems to me that we seem to be more interested in quantifying, you know, how yeah. voters vote and making sense of you know political behavior through you know different metrics and numbers then we are unpacking the deep history that we have right and we have and it's not because of a lack of a literature we have an, an 
know, we have an entire field called historical institutionalism, which helps us think through uh, the path dependence that you did mention. But, yeah. you know, for some way, we seem to be too wedded into, I guess, quantifying behavior more than understanding how structures influence it. And the particular points at which something has changed or where it's remained the same, it's not all remained the same. But if we are seeing path dependence, then it's important to pick out which bits have remained the same and why they have so much power and which bits have not remained the same and things have changed. So I think part of what the book is doing as well is it's saying there has been social transformation. These villages look very different. Inter I say somewhere exactly this line that the, the grandfathers of these landlords wouldn't recognize the village today if they, if they saw it. They wouldn't understand the interactions. They wouldn't understand the complete lack of deference um, that exists um, within uh, within this um, within these villages so I uh, at the same time then I, I conclude by saying there's this colonial overhang right and the way the village is behaving today is because of the way the village was settled uh, in terms of land rights being settled and um, distributed across the village population so what what then am I you know, where has that problem been? And I say then that it is in terms of not changing the relationships of structural inequality, of, of inequality or empowering those that never got land, empowering them in other ways through education, uh, through social mobility of some other kind, through industry coming up nearby, through a different opportunity structure being, becoming available to them. And it's because all of that didn't happen that that land and the way in which it was settled so long ago still has so much salience, still resonates to such an extent, still manages to determine politics. It need not have if a different opportunity structure had become uh, visible. So it's, it's um, yeah, I think you're right in being sort of, you know, being able to do a little bit more and picking out those moments and right. those factors, yeah. The, the other you know, thing that struck me was, and as I read the book and as I, you know, uh, thought as I thought about the strategic interactions and the negotiations that do occur um, is the role of ideas and if and how they influence uh, voting patterns, the choices that voters make. Uh, does ideology matter when determining the choices voters make in Pakistan or and South Asia more more broadly? Yes, and that's fortunate and unfortunate at the same time. So I think the leading book on this now um, came out last year um, by Pradeep Chipper and Rahul Verma on their book on ideology um, in India and the role that it played um, in the last two elections. And they're saying quite strongly that it's ideology, that it really is, even in India, it is now ideological politics that's playing itself out. Fortune, I mean, we, we'd all be excited by that, so which is why I say fortunately, because it takes us away from this ethnic politics business that we've been talking about for so long, about caste and everybody voting their caste and, you know, the fact that we're so beholden to our primordial identity. Uh, so it changes the idea of the in South Asian voter away from that and it sort of modernizes them in some sense. But unfortunately, where that ideology is heading is populism. Right, and the sorts of leaders that we've now got. And the, the, the import of these ideas, uh, the salience of these ideas around development in India 
which which sort of really carried that and which is then easy to carry across into into religion again like back into once you have that kind of support to take it away from caste but carry it into religion as an ideology um, almost but in Pakistan um, the idea that you can win most arguments around by bringing up corruption right and it's great that corruption gets that kind of attention but the fact that corruption will hide the fact that you've lost lost so much of your political freedom uh, in the sorts of politics that we've now been seeing for the last two years or slightly longer, three, four years, there's been a real shift um, in politics around 2014. And it's again with the lack of balance between elected and non-elected institutions in Pakistan. But the fact that all of that is okay as long as they're fighting corruption. Right. It's the idea of cleaning out the swamp. As long as you're cleaning out the swamp, I'll let you get away with whatever else you need to get away with. And the fact that ideology could lead you there is slightly is, is, is scarier. Um, so we should be excited about the fact that new kinds of politics are coming um, through. Uh, but where that politics is heading is slightly uh, problematic. Um, I'm thinking about what I'm writing right now, actually, that should, fingers crossed, be out soon, um, is actually arguing a paper on urban um, cities um, in Pakistan, saying that you actually don't find ethnic politics or clientelism, and that by asking voters how they vote and how they make their decisions and why they select certain leaders, we're seeing party identification as the main thing. And that party identification isn't connected to clientelism, that it's connected to ideas and, and um, ideologies. So it's there, it's happening, but is that the reason that we have the leaders that we have in these countries now is, is part of the equation. <laughs> Great, so, so, so let's talk more about the contemporary importance of your book and connect it to some um, um, events in Pakistan, and you helped me by talking about that uh, just now. Uh, so, so the book shows that, you know, Pakistani democracy is robust and it's, it's com is competitive. You know, voters are aware of their choices uh, and they make in informed choices based on their interests. But it looks like these interests are localized, they're contained, and they're largely met on an ad hoc basis, right? They don't necessarily flow up to influence um, national politics or influence uh, public policy nationally. Um, you know, so in this scenario, parties then don't really have you know, the incentive to uh, reach out, come down to different areas, rural areas and compete um, for votes, um, which then leaves the status quo somewhat intact, right? So, so despite this, you know, deep inequality um, and subjugation. Um, citizens from lower income groups are some, somehow uh, settle with the existing stat, uh, status quo. Will this form of politics uh, that you describe in the book evolve? Um, will a politics of resistance emerge soon in Pakistan? That depends entirely on the behavior of political parties. It's about organization and it's about somebody wanting to organize voters in particularly this way. And that is an idea that applies across South Asia is, as I mentioned earlier, do parties have that kind of incentive mm -hmm. to want to create that politics when the current system may be working quite well for them? 
And I would like to imagine that parties in Pakistan have a greater need to do that in order to be able to strengthen themselves vis-a-vis -vis the non-elective institutions that have such a power over them. Um, and to be able to come out of the power and the manipulation of, of the military, essentially, you, you, know, you start to create these constituencies that will, that will support you, that will come back to continue to vote for you. And we see a little bit of that, of the fact that political parties do have some power, at least parties like the PMLN and PPP do have constituencies that do continue to support them over a very long period of time. So, um, you know, after every military regime ends, elections happen, and people come out and vote for the PPP, and then they vote for the PMLN, right? And and um, Musharraf, for example, General Musharraf's government tried very hard um, against both parties, and yet when he had to go in 2008, it was these two parties that came back uh, very strongly afterwards. So there is a resilience to them. There is constituencies that they've built, but they haven't tried in any way to really organize a constituency um, that is entirely theirs, that it's off the rural poor, that is off the majority voters of the country. I mean, the numbers just don't add up in the way that they should add up, uh, in the sense that your majority voter is rural and poor, and that this is a huge constituency for you, but you're not appealing to that. And this is not, it's not as if it hasn't happened in, in Pakistan before. I mean, the 1970 election, just reading about that is, it, you know, it's, it's such a dramatic story of nobody believing that this brand new party could actually come up against, um, against the military regime and actually win an election that it wasn't meant to win, but it did that. Um, in, and they did that again, when you go into these villages years later and you re ask them the stories of the 1970s, the politics that they tell you then, and they'll start with that, even without provoking them, they will, they will start with that story of, well, you've asked me about politics, let me just say this is not the politics of the 1970s. We don't do politics like we used to. Now we have a different politics. And then the 1970s story that they tell you is of being organized as a class and as a class across village borders. Now your politics is in the village border, right? It's, it all works with vote blocks in there. But that was a politics that spread across village borders and that spoke to you of your class and how you are in the same situation as people in other villages and therefore you need to come together as a group. That kind of organization isn't something that parties are doing right now. So no, there isn't going to be that kind of sort of dramatic transformation that we saw very quickly happen incredibly quickly with much higher levels of inequality, land inequality in the 1970s. Um, so if it could happen then, there's no reason that it can't happen um, now. But there are other stories of transformation within it. So for example, I think local government has a very high transformative value, but we, we haven't taken that seriously in Pakistan either. There hasn't been consistent local government. This book, the research for it happened at a time when local governments were around, they were robust, they were rigorous, the elections around them had real life. And uh, we, we, the stories that I was able to record from them shows that dramatic transformation. I mean, there's the story of Sultan who rises up against the village landlord. He is by far the strongest, most repressive landlord in the book. And Sultan uses the election of a union to, to the union council as his way to stand up to him. And very quickly, the village realizes the changed position and shifts their, their you know, their connection with Sultan, and they start going to him for more things than they do to the landlord. 
which is a really interesting, very quick shift. And then there's this other story between two members of union councils. One is Nazim in the book, who's, who's the son of, um, who's the nephew of one of the big landlords. He's from one of the most important political families in the entire district, not the village. And he's um, the union um, Nazim. Um, he's the union mayor. And then there's this other guy from a very, uh, from, you know, a Muslim Sheikh, which is essentially the equivalent of the lowest caste group. And he's a counselor on the, on the union as well, in the, in the union. And he's collected his votes and he's very much part of decision making. And this is somebody, I mean, one is a guy who would have called the village council meeting when things needed to be discussed. This other guy wouldn't have been invited to the village council meeting. Okay and wouldn't have been able to sit with everyone else there. They're now on the same union council boards. I mean, in two different union councils, but they're at similar kinds of tables now, negotiating and making decisions over similar kinds of things. If local governments were more empowered, then their power would have been greater. Union councils even then were not very empowered. But that's certainly one way. I mean, we've seen how things can shift within villages. Now we just need to see local governments be taken more seriously, be given more power. Um, for decision making. So these kinds of transformations are, are uh, visible. And I think I, I do need to mention that I think the thing that has the most power, transformative ability is the expectation of a repeat election. And that's something that isn't there, hasn't been there in Pakistan until very recently. When you can expect that an election is coming in five years and we are all going to renegotiate again and we're going to pay you back for everything you're doing right now, it changes the equation and the language changes, the behavior changes, door to door campaigning by landlords has become a thing. And they'll say this to you, it's like they don't come out anymore unless you go and get them to come out, right? And you promise them things and you try and talk to them. And sometimes it's not a good, it's simply saying, I think of you as one of our village, as a person in this village who I value. Um, so language has changed to a very large extent. And a lot of that has happened because the election has become a repeat game. Right. And it's taken Pakistan over 70 years to get that going. <laughs> uh, I guess a politics of resistance also depends on how robust civil society is and can be. And you, know, you argue in a recent piece uh, in current history that the space for uh, civic participation is shrinking in Pakistan, which reduces uh, this, the, the room that ethnic movements, uh, class-based movements, um, the media, uh, academia, and other research institutes have to raise issues of national importance, right? And which then, re which then reduces the incentives for parties to pursue uh, reform or liberalization of some sort. Absolutely right. So it depends on the political parties, but when political parties become part of the whole game, of shrinking civic spaces. And that's something we see in Pakistan, but we're seeing it around the world. Again, it's a global phenomenon of the shrinking civic space where it's becoming harder to say something. But in Pakistan, it's a little bit stronger in the sense that it's dangerous, right? And it can be dangerous to say these things. Um, certain, certain topics are just off the agenda. But again, it seems that that's happening in India as well. Just certain ways of being certain discussions around food and so it's just like there are certain topics that you wouldn't have imagined would become dangerous a few years ago are now incredibly dangerous things to talk about certain positions are difficult to take so that's put civil society organizations on certainly a back foot there's self-censorship that happens because of it newspapers and media groups will self-censor 
civil society organizations will tell you that we'll, we'll, we'll take on these projects, but we won't take on those other ones because it's just not worth it. And unfortunately, one of those areas in Pakistan, at least, that has just gone off, that, that has become problematic um, for um, civil society organizations to work on is women's rights. And they don't want to take on projects on women's rights, which, is, which has huge implications for a very long time into the future. So space has certainly shrunk, but since we're talking about rural areas, I can't say that I ever thought, and at least while doing the research for this book, that civil society was really a force in rural areas anyway. There are small projects, um, but in any of these 35 villages where we were, I can't name you a civil society organization that was trying to organize voters either, that was trying to organize any kinds of politics. Um, they're, they're very development focused even when they exist, but they literally didn't exist in these places. So, you know, they're also more sort of urban phenomena, they're, they're, they're for all kinds of reasons. But even in whatever form they did exist, they're under serious attack now, as is the media. Uh, as is the notion of rights in general. So when you're talking about all of that, you've made a great connection here, is when you talk about all of that, then how do you talk about this resistance, politics of mobilization and resistance and organization and collective action? Mm. All of that ends up being compromised. Right, and, and without a strong leader um, that you had in the 1970s leading a, a mass, uh, you know, broad-based political movement, I guess, the, the um, the chances are not very high in the near future, is my guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I wanna I wanna end with two questions, Shandana. Um first is what was the hardest part of writing this book and the most satisfying part of writing this book? Satisfying part was finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> That was hugely satisfying. Now, also hearing people connect with rural areas through it, uh, with rural voters, right? That has been really interesting. I mean, the sorts of questions that I now get, such as the ones um, you've asked as well, is that if I've played some role in in making sure that the rural voter has become more visible, the rural voter's mm -hmm. behavior, the way they think, the way they're doing, has become more visible than it was earlier, uh, then that's I've, I've really enjoyed everything that sort of happened uh, because of it and the fact that we're now talking about voters a lot more. So that's been very satisfying. And the fact that people seem to have connected um, with that story, uh, that's been satisfying. Um, I mean, to be honest, I really enjoyed all <laughs> writing it. I enjoyed the whole process. But I think the hardest part has got to be the, 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 the field work. Um, that's gone into it, um, the methodologies, the, the trying to unravel something that may not be so obvious. Um, that's been a challenge, but it's also been the funnest part. So the hardest part was also sort of the funnest part, the most challenging, the most creative part of it. But the hardest part also is working as a woman in rural Punjab. That's not a friendly space for, for women. So I was very lucky to always have a research team but at some point, it's a little bit frustrating to always have to be working with, um, with others and be very dependent on them for access to the exact spaces where politics is happening because they're not spaces for women. Mm -hmm. These are not women-friendly spaces. You don't go and sit in on a village meeting 
you don't go in and you know have a lot of these conversations in the spaces where they're happening so data is what we call a data or a data which are slightly different things but these are the common spaces within within villages that's not where women sit so that's not where i could sit right i was very housebound um but then i noticed that being housebound and being able to invite the man of the house into the house where i was speaking with the women got the man to open up in ways that he wasn't in the public space outside so at some level i started at some point i started to use that uh, to my advantage and then of course i had the men in the um group come back and say it's so hard to speak in these spaces because they're all saying the same thing and it's very hard to draw it apart and then telling them as well is to start doing household interviews and speak to them there where people are more open but missing out on that collective in those public spaces is difficult and then having to always work with someone through someone to really collect all of these stories from where the main politics is happening i mean that was an easy um and also just because you're not expected to be there as a woman doing field work or wanting to ask these kinds of questions i mean this constants in why are you here why are you doing this uh, what's getting you to do it who's paying you to do this right whose questions are you asking um all of that was was hard but you find your ways around it and you make it work for you and at the end of the day that was also the funnest part of it all yeah it was the most fun part and finally what are you working on next we we are continuing with pretty much uh, the same team so my co-author right from the start and you know sort of a uh, partner in crime in all of this work has been dr ali chima who's who's based in pakistan at uh, still at lums and we we we've continued to work on voters um in fact more so uh, we've continued to focus on 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 urban voters now which again is is an area that's really understudied um trying to understand how they connect so if we can say that rural transformation has happened then you can imagine that urban transformation is even more dramatic mm-hmm. given urbanization levels um there's there's just so much happening in urban areas with voters and the way they connect with parties also because of the repeat election game that started so politics competitive politics is exists in pakistan these parties win with very small margins even in the district where uh, this book is based the margins for the 2018 election are incredibly small so this is very competitive politics mm-hmm. and in cities as well it's been very competitive so there's a real need to understand that so our focus on um voters has continued and we're starting to think more in terms of of trust um of institutions um so anything that can get us to focus on how voters are thinking how they're behaving how they connect with national institutions um and uh, i guess building where you started uh, your your questions was building those linkages between what voters are doing and what the implications then are at the national level great ashundana thank you so much for doing this it was thank a delight thank you and that was shandana khan momant the author of crafty oligarchs savvy voters democracy under inequality in rural pakistan i am karthik nachipan and you've been listening to the lake podcast <laughs>